afternoon listeners, this is the Dogs Program. We're here every uh, Saturday at noon to defend and promote public education. Now, that's education that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It should be public in ownership and control because it is the only one that is public in accountability. Uh, the word public has been uh, bandied around quite a bit these days. Uh, some people think that so-called faith schools should be called public schools as they are in other countries. But in fact, faith schools are not and cannot be public schools because they are not public in purpose and outcome. Even if they are openly accessible, they are not accessible uh, without discrimination because uh, they uh, are for a particular faith and are usually owned and controlled by particular faiths. But there has been a movement, and we'll be dealing with it a bit later, uh, about uh, going to the English version or the uh, European version and, in, and completely funding so-called faith schools but, and then calling them public schools. The dogs do not take this position. That is why we often start this program with a definition of what public schools are. Now, we have an interesting uh, press release for you, which uh, Dale's going to read for us. Um, we had a, a, a message from somebody, I'm not sure where they came from. They were perhaps anonymous or perhaps they did have a name. They sent us a message about something that was going on up in the Newcastle area. So we thought we'd uh, share it with you and comment on it. So here it is. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got press release 952 from the dogs. State aid used for church purposes, a breach of section 116 of the constitution. The dogs received the following message from a 3CR listener. Message. Are you aware that there's a move in some Catholic dioceses, for example, Maitland, Newcastle, to change the structure of Catholic schools? Schools will become subject to control by parish priests, many aspects of school service will be integrated with other church functions and schools will be required to pay rent to parishes for use of the premises. It should be noticed that all, noted that all of these premises have been updated in one way or another with public money. There would have to be serious doubt that Section 116 of the Constitution is not being breached. So the dogs note that in the high, Dogs High Court case of 1964-1981, the Catholic Church argued in 1979 in a 26-day trial of facts that their schools were no more religious than state schools. They argued that they were educational rather than religious institutions, in spite of the fact that they were an integral part of the church's asset and enterprise structures. Evidence was presented to the court in 1979 and 1980, which indicated that the situation described by our correspondent was rife throughout Australia. All of the judges, with the notable exception of Justice Lionel Keith Murphy, ignored it. Justice Murphy made the following statement in his dissenting judgment. It rings as true today as it did in 1981. Paragraph 41 says, The fact is, that under the Commonwealth laws, vast sums of money are being expended for the support of church schools. The result of the Capital Grants Act is that great and increasing sums are being given to churches to acquire property, which can then lawfully be used for religious purposes apart altogether from schooling. Although the state States Grants Schools Assistance Act 1978 forbids approval of projects for grants if sole or one of the principal objects is to provide facilities for use wholly or principally for in relation to religious worship. This does not prevent a grant for a project as long as religious worship is not the sole or principal object or one of the principal objects, and the Acts, Act does not prevent subsequent use of the property for any purpose, even exclusive use for religious purpose. 
the evidence showed that two Catholic parish school school buildings at Churchill and Corio in Victoria, although not used wholly or principally for or in relation to religious worship, have been used for religious purposes apart from schooling. 80% of the Catholic primary school building at Churchill in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria was contributed by the payment of Commonwealth grants. The building is also used as the local parish church. A nearby street sign indicates that the building is a Catholic church. $127,000 of the $180,000 cost of construction of the parish primary school in Corio outside Geelong was provided out of government grants. Both of these buildings have been used for celebration of Mass for the local parish each Sunday and for confessions each Saturday and occasionally for other religious services. There is nothing in the challenged acts to restrict similar use of other property obtained with monies given to the churches pursuant to these acts. The effect of the grants acts is that the wealth of the churches is increased annually by many millions of dollars of taxpayers' monies. They have the effect of establishing religion. As Douglas J. observed, in common understanding, there is no surer way of establishing an institution than by financing it. And that's Wheeler versus Barrera in 1975. Dogs agree with our correspondent with our correspondent and Justice Murphy. Unfortunately, the majority judges in 1981, in a political judgment, did not do so. As a consequence, Australia is dogged by every growing problem of inequity and sectarianism and an underfunded public education system. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, isn't that interesting? People can just see that it is not just education that we are funding when it comes to faith schools. We are also funding churches directly because the money that goes to these schools is not properly accounted for and can be diverted into other church uh, enterprises and even the building of churches themselves. So uh, we found it very interesting that other people had noticed this and were questioning it. And that is why we uh, went back to what Justice Murphy had to say. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Yes, well, uh, we're back here with the Dogs Program. And there's an interim report has just come out from the Productivity Commission on the school reform, the Australian school reform and where it's going and where it should go. But uh, Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwall on the John Menager blog had this to say about the interim productivity report. Over to you, Diane. Thanks, Jean. The Productivity Commission review ignores repressive structure of Australian school system by Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. The Productivity Commission's interim report on school reform has conjured up some good ideas, but it ignores the regressive structure of Australia's school system and how it acts as an anchor on school improvement. We've all heard this one. One night, a passerby noticed a man scrounging around under a streetlight. What have you lost, he said. A $50 a $50 note, came the reply. Where did you lose it? Anywhere along the street. Why are you looking here then? Because this is where the light is. The Productivity Commission, PC, has just handed down an interim report on its review of the National School Reform Agreement. Alas, it has also searched under the streetlight. Despite initially inviting evidence on the key policy and external drivers of student outcomes, the Commission has now stated that it has focused on factors that can operate within the school gates. So what's changed? The scrutiny of school education has always focused inside the school gates, leaving much of what goes on outside escaping attention. Most ignored of all is 
The reality that over four decades and almost alone among our peers, Australia has developed a highly segregated system of schools that continues to under-deliver on our expectations. Some of the solutions will always lie within schools, but recurring frenzies of school reforms, again over decades, haven't delivered on their various promises. Why? Because the structural reforms, which are also needed, are too hard and would likely be resisted by the most powerful players. That's what's happened to much of Gonski, so governments and even school peak groups avoid the deep structural problems that continue to dog school education and student achievement in Australia. This time around, the, Procto- the Productivity Commission has done much the same. It lamely acknowledges that some barriers to educational progress are beyond the capacity of individual schools to address. But it seems that a wide-ranging review of school reform is equally beyond the capacity of the Productivity Commission. The Commission's report states from the outset, despite the large increase to in public funding since 2018, student outcomes have stagnated. One day, the people making that statement might think about how much money goes exactly where. Unfortunately, the report ignores the reality that school funding is far is still far from needs-based. In fact, overall funding has grown fastest in the school sectors that deserve the most that serve the most privileged students. Public schools in most jurisdictions still have to wait until 2030 to be funded at the resource standard. Obviously, if schools aren't funded adequately, teachers will be overworked and teaching effectiveness will suffer. It seems like a productivity issue. The total resources going into schools matters more than it should because they are distributed inequitably. The Commission is concerned about teacher shortages, and rightly so. But while disadvantaged schools are collapsing and cancelling classes, Teacher-student ratios reveal that high-fee independent schools have an effective surplus of teachers, and still their results are barely better than government and Catholic schools enrolling similar students. That is something that perhaps should raise the eyebrows of those concerned about productivity. But the most important resources going into schools wear school uniforms. The Gonski Review and a wide array of subsequent research has found that the SES of a student's peers, even more than the SES of families, were impacting on student outcomes. Within schools, what are identified as peer effects impact in different ways on such things as the level of social and cultural capital, time on task, and focus on learning, attention to individual students, teacher expectations, depth of curriculum, student identity and aspirations, learning opportunities and resources. The net effect is that negative peer effects are associated with students from disadvantaged social backgrounds, positive effects with students from advantaged backgrounds. Overwhelming concentrations of social disadvantage in a subset of Australian schools is undermining student achievement and the way we resource and regulate our schools is making the problem worse. Taxpayer fueled resource advantages help some local schools some schools attract high-performing students, while unregulated un- enrolment practices and ever-increasing fees effectively excludes children from disadvantaged backgrounds. As the Herald Sun reported last week, fees have increased by 50% on average over the last decade in Sydney independent schools. No wonder we've got one of the most socially segregated school systems in the OECD. The Productivity Commission fleetingly acknowledges that peer effects have a significant impact on student outcomes, but offers no solutions. The inquiry started with good intentions, by wanting to know more about the key policy and external drivers of student outcomes. That certainly conveyed an impression of open minds at work, but the focus narrowed to the safe and familiar territory of teaching effectiveness. The reforms suggested by the PC could make some difference if successfully implemented. It has picked up some of the better suggestions currently doing the rounds, addressing teacher workload and retention, teacher expertise and supply, inclusive education, student well-being and meaningful accountability and more. 
the bigger question is whether in the absence of wider structural reforms, these changes will succeed in lifting student outcomes. All this evidence suggests that as long as we continue to concentrate socially disadvantaged students together in the same schools, all the accompanying problems will persist. The Productivity Commission could look beyond the streetlight, but appears determined not to do so. That was from Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner, who are the authors of Waiting for Blonsky, and we heard them uh, last week on the DOGS program during the Fabian's discussion. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale, and I think it's time for a break. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and uh, here is Maddie. Uh, she's going to read a very interesting article written by David Zinia, uh, an academic uh, from the Southern Queensland University. And uh, it's about school funding. Stop all government funding for private schools. Well, we like that idea. Why and how we could do it? I'm not sure that we agree with what he thinks we could do. But anyway, let's consider it. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. This is an article called Stop All Government Funding for Private Schools, Why and How We Could Do It. Along with many fellow Australians, I was momentarily heartened last year by the United Kingdom's Labour Party announcing that it would scrap elitist private schools in the UK, which are confusingly called public schools, if it won the UK election. Had it happened, those UK private schools would have been nationalised their charitable status removed, and their endowments, investments and properties redistributed to the state sector. I have often called for the defunding of private schools in Australia, but I want to make the distinction between defunding and nationalising. I don't believe all private schools in Australia should be nationalised. I do believe no private school should receive public funding via governments. Private schools that are unviable without being funded by governments should transition into becoming faith-based public schools, similar to the UK model of faith-based public schools. Most faith-based schools in the UK are part of the public system, as they are in most European countries and in Canada. Religious schools, i.e. Catholic, Jewish, Muslim and Sikh, are public schools and almost fully funded by the public. They do not charge additional parental fees and follow the same national curriculum, enrolment and staffing rules as public schools. There's a difference between the UK and Australia. In the UK, private schools are not publicly funded but have tax deductible status and there are far fewer of them than we have here in Australia. Currently, they educate only around 7% of the UK population and they rely totally on fees raised from parents and donors. This was also the situation in Australia prior to the 1963, with the beginning of what has been termed state aid to Catholic schools, aimed at bringing their systemic or parish school science facilities up to a comparable standard to science facilities in public schools. So began the long-term process of providing federal benefits to private schools in Australia. At that time, some 25% of students were enrolled in private schools in Australia and in 1965, these schools received 25% of all Commonwealth funding. The morphing of Australia's school funding into the unsustainable model we have today. Today, private schools in Australia receive 75% of all federal funding. That's whopping. We've gone a long way past just bringing poor Catholic parish schools up to public school standards. These days, the poor schools across Australia, those needing help, are public schools. Today, we don't just fund Catholic schools, we now fund all religious schools, including two Scientology schools with fewer than 50 students, each, each receiving almost $10,000 per student every year from the public purse. 
We also fund 31 exclusive brethren schools that in many cases get more government funding per student than nearby government schools. In Germany, the Church of Scientology is an illegal organization. In Australia, they are a tax exempt charity. And you might remember Kevin Rudd labeled the Brethren Group as an extremist cult that breaks up families. But now we give them more money for their schools than we give to many public schools. The recent OECD Education at a Glance 2019 shows that Australia is the fourth most privatized country for education. Whereas countries like Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Luxembourg spend almost no private money on school education. Australia ranks fourth as the most privatized school education spending in the OECD after Mexico, Colombia, and Turkey, with 35% of students attending private schools. In Australia, private schools on average receive about 10K per student from combined government funding on top of the parental fees, which can be as much as 35K per student, non-boarding. According to research by former Productivity Commissioner Trevor Cobold, real government funding, adjusted for inflation, for public schools between 2009 to 2017 was cut by $17 per student, while funding for Catholic schools increased by $1,420 per student and $1,318 for so-called independent schools per student. Total real income per public student over that time period fell by $58 per student for public schools, but increased by $1,888 in Catholic schools and by $2,306 in independent schools. May I remind you, most Australians, around 65%, will send their children to public schools. It is claimed by conservative commentators that private schools are more efficient in their use of money. In 2018, 2.5 million or 65% of Australian students attended public primary and secondary schools. Combined government recurrent non-capital expenditure, which are the latest figures from 2016 to 17, averaged $17,531 per student across all states and territories. In the Catholic and independent schools, this figure was $19,302, including $10,664 of public funding per student, the rest being mainly made up of parent fees. For example, public schools in New South Wales are operating with less than 70% of the income per student of private schools, with public schools reporting a net yearly income of $13,000 a student compared to the private school's income of $20,000 per student. Given recent research finds that public schools, excluding select entry schools, equal or outperform private schools when socioeconomic status is considered. One must, must ask, why does it take so much extra money to educate private school students? Perhaps it is because the decline in Australia's performance in international tests over the decade is primarily due to falling results in private schools, the falls being similar in both independent and Catholic schools. Money matters for disadvantaged schools. Study after study indicates that money does really matter in education in disadvantaged communities, but not in wealthier ones. Unfortunately, in Australia, it seems that most of the additional government spent on education flows to private schools that don't need this additional money. Half of the $22 billion spent on capital projects in Australian schools between 2013 and 2017 was spent in just 10% of schools. These schools are the country's richest ranked by average annual income from all sources, federal and state government funding fees and other private funding over the five year period. They teach fewer than 30% of students. They also reach 28% or $2.4 billion of the $8.6 billion in capital spending funded by government. Over the past decade, public funding to private schools has risen nearly twice as fast as public funding to public schools, 
Recurrent public funding to private schools topped $14 billion in 2017. So what's going upwards to about $19 billion next year, I believe. It's, it, this is, we're, we're talking about big figures here. Mm, yeah. A lot of money, but it's public money. Mm. Yeah, it is public money. Okay, David thinks, I believe any private school that charges fees over the agreed schooling resource standard, SRS is $11,343 for primary and $14,254 for secondary students in 2019, should immediately lose all public funding. Elitist schools across Australia charging over $20,000 in fees do not need public money. They will not lose too many students if they need to raise their fees even higher. Those private schools unable to meet their recurrent costs should voluntarily become public schools opening enrollment to all students in their local area. Private schools charging less than the SRS should have their public funding reduced gradually by 10% per annum, annum until it is zero. Again, if these schools cannot meet their financial obligations, they could be taken over by the state and become, as in the UK and elsewhere, state-run faith-based schools open to all children in their local area. This would be an actual saving of money for Australian taxpayers over time. Given that Catholic and independent schools in Australia were subsidised by $14.03 billion in public funding in 2018, some should some close and even if five to 10% of their students were to enrol in public schools, there would be no problem integrating all these kids into an equitable, multicultural, diverse public education system. We would then return to the same situation prior to the beginning of the school choice phenomenon. I believe this is what we should be planning because all of the data indicates that what we are doing with school funding in Australia is blatantly unfair and financially unsustainable. What do you think? It's a very interesting proposition um, that David is putting forward. But um, like most academics and others in Australia, at a certain point, they're just not prepared to take on the churches. They're not prepared to take on particularly uh, the Catholic Church or the the big faith base, the Anglican Church with their school systems not to mention the brethren and the Scientologists, of course. But um, uh, it's an interesting proposition. Our dogs just believe that um, there should be no state aid to any uh, faith-based schools and um, that uh, they should come under the public system, but uh, they should not be remain faith-based schools. But uh, we pay for them. They should be open and they should be public and we should be able to use them for our children. That's our position. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and uh, we're coming back to look at Unbeaching the Whale, another very interesting academic article written by Dina Ashenden, who is uh, a fellow at um, Melbourne University. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and Dale has a very interesting article for us written by Dean Ashenden from Melbourne University, Unbeaching the Whale, The Education Revolution Failed and So Did Its Way of Thinking. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Dean. I've got an article here by Dean Ashenden, Unbeaching the Whale, The Education Revolution Failed and So Did Its Way of Thinking. Australian schooling lives within the comprehensive failure of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard's Education Revolution. David Gonski's proposals, by some margin, the best of a bad lot, had only limited purchase on the many-sided problem they tackled and didn't get up anyway. The teacher quality agenda, or a little less aggressively teaching quality, wanted to create a more respected and capable profession via better pay, higher entry scores and training in effectiveness. 
but delivered only low morale and a flight from teaching. The outcomes push, a stick with no carrot, collapsed schooling's complicated work into a single narrow measure, systematised a draconian regime of domestic and international teaching and compounded the blunder by constructing a new national website that told teachers and parents which schools to avoid. All this was supposed to be driven by an expanded national machinery of agreements, meetings and institutions centred on Canberra, the only administration not stuck with the tricky business of actually running schools, in which state, territory and federal governments of all persuasions were enlisted. Those responsible for making this Heath-Robinson contraption work were left confused about who is steering the ship and exposed to incessant micromanagement by state territory ministers who carry the can for troubled systems. The system as a whole, already hamstrung by the proliferation of agencies, institutions and authorities, was left with no entity, state, federal or national, with a span of authority and responsibility sufficient to drive improvement. The revolution and its various components were no sooner in place than a leading international authority on systemic change predicted an unambiguous, in unambiguous terms that it wouldn't work. Six years on, the head of Australia's leading education research agency asked how well we're doing in meeting a series of challenges ranging from lifting the teaching profession to reducing the long tail of student under, underachievement. He found that things were going nowhere or backwards in all of them. Six years later, he looked again, much the same story, the revolution's own miserable measure of outcomes in the fundamentals, the PISA test, has recorded a slow but steady decline in Australia. The rallying cry of top five by 25 embedded in the Australian Educa Education Act of 2013 now looks risible. This comprehensive failure has left an elephant-sized question in the room. Now what? The revolution's one real success was in directing the attention and shaping the language of policymakers and thought leaders. They now have no other way of thinking and talking about schooling. Hence, ministers declaring that yet another bad PISA result to be yet another wake-up call. Hence, more announcements about lifting teachers' pay or entry scores. Hence, new tests to make sure that teachers can spell. And hence, more looking at other countries to see what they're doing right that might work here. All less from conviction than from not knowing what else to do. Seen from the outside, it comes close to a famous definition of insanity. But what is the alternative? Revive and reconfigure Gonski, the revolution's one attempt at structural reform designed to level the playing field, as proposed in Waiting for Gonski by Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner. Put all schools, government and non-government alike, on a common basis of funding and regulation to stem the residualisation of government sector and the damage being done to learning and life chances of the most disadvantaged students? Greenwell and Bonner's proposal and the analysis underlying it have a lot going for them, on which more in a moment. But first, the but. Could Gonski rise again? It enjoyed massive popular and professional support and still didn't get up last time. What chance a revamped, but not necessarily less threatening version, promoted in the midst of a long post-Gonski hangover, when the non-government schools are already on such a good wicket? And let's imagine a school system on the other side of a substantial upheaval we'd still have much or all of that counterproductive national machinery. We'd still have Canberra finding yet more ways to interfere in everything and federal education ministers wanting to be national education ministers. We'd still have an obsolete grammar of schooling centred on ranking rather than success for all. We'd still have heads full of trivialising ideas about outcomes, effectiveness, teacher quality and performance, as well as the belief that salvation can be found in practice when the problem, problems are essentially structural. If it is possible to say that Greenwell and Bonnell 
say that the Greenwell and Bonner proposal is too much, it is also possible to say that it's not enough. Are we in a catch-22 where what needs to be doing can't be done? Not quite. The one thing that can be done is the thinking that the revolution couldn't do. Stop obsessing about a narrow range of outcomes and start thinking about all the things that schools do, are and should be. Schools are meant to, and often claim to, develop the whole person and not just the cerebral cortex. Very well, how do we know if they are? Getting a broader sense of cognitive outcomes, often urged, is just the start. Schooling is an experience as well as a producer of outcomes. Around a fifth of most working lives is spent at school. Is it a safe, happy, rewarding experience? For whom? Schooling has outcomes for the social order as well as for individuals. Are they of the kind that a pluralist democratic society needs? The case has to be made for indicators that measure the quality of the experience, the diversity within each school rather than between schools, and the development or otherwise of general competencies. Stop devising bite-sized improvements and start trying to understand why incremental reform has such a disappointing record. Consider, for example, the current crop of solutions to teacher shortages, low morale and poor retention in light of reforms stretching back to the 1960s. One by one, apparently sensible proposals led to, a, led to new agencies and institutions for teacher training, registration, standards and discipline, and the setting of terms and conditions of employment, most within each of the eight states and territories and or at a national level. That tangle meant failure for the Rudd-Gillard proposals, and it meant that the current crop will fail too. In much the same way, bite-sized improvements in teacher workload have driven one reduction after another in class sizes and one in increase after another in numbers and categories of support staff. The result has been chronic cost escalation and extended life for fundamentally for a fundamentally obsolete way of organising student and teacher work and no improvement in teacher morale and workloads. Stop talking about the quality of teaching or teachers and start talking about the quality of work in schools. In fact, go a step further. Stop focusing on teachers and teaching and begin at the beginning with learning. For its fixation on teaching, the revolution can thank a vast body of research into teacher effectiveness, premised on the assumption that it could replicate the success of the medical sciences by doing the same kind of science. The most fundamental mistake lies in imagining that schools are essentially deliverers of the service of teaching, in much the same way that hospitals and clinics deliver health services. In reality, schools are not like that at all. Schools are sites of the production of learning not by teachers, but by a four million strong workforce, otherwise known as students. The biggest determinant of their productivity is not the quality of supervision, but the organisation of their work. An inherited, inherited grammar of schooling is organised around increasingly intense competition from year one all the way up to year 12 for position in a ranked order. It guarantees failure for many. A more productive grammar would shift assessment from ranking to the growth and progress of each student and, around that, change the organisation of work and workplaces. The implications stretch from infrastructure dominated by the classroom to industrial awards and teacher unionism to popular assumptions about what schooling looks like. That's what's needed. That's what needs thinking and talking about. It is terra incognita to effectiveness research and to the revolution. As the grammar of schooling is to work and workplaces, so are the sectors to the industry as a whole. Don't take them as a given for policy. Do make them its objects. They are not 
as it is so often claimed, a means by which families can choose an appropriate or a faith-based schooling or a way for governments to cut costs by permitting fees to be charged. They are the means by which some schools have sucked the most sought-after students and families out of other schools. Social segregation in Australian schooling is now more pronounced than in any comparable OECD country. To social segregation is added religious division. Government schools are secular, but almost all non-government schools are attached to one or other of around 20 religions and denominations. With that and other sorting devices comes the separation of language and cultural groups too. In this matter, we have a very good starting point for a thinking and talking in Greenwell and Bonner's book. And we should add a case of outcomes being given too much weight in social, religious and cultural division getting not nearly enough. Don't dwell on transparency, a Gillard favourite, or reporting and accountability, state ministers' contributions to teacher workloads, or school performance, intimidatory ranking for schools as well as kids. Start talking about the structure of the system and its governance, the fragments of the authority and responsibility within the states and territories between the sectors, and between these and Canberra and its purportedly national machinery. How can these bizarre arrangements be reconstructed? Should we go back to the future? Return responsibility for schooling whence it came and, as the Constitution requires, to the states and territories. Install in each a cross-sectional statutory authority with a remit to drive a long-term restructuring of the industry and its work and workplaces. If not that, then what? There's no shortage of things that could be added to this list. The revolution's questionable taken for granted, equality of opportunity, choice, schooling's economic contributions, badly need re-examining. So does the habit of looking for silver bullets in other countries rather than trying to understand how Australia's system has developed and what it can and can't become. So all the endless talk about what makes a good teacher or a good school to the exclusion of what makes a good system. But the point is not in a to-do list. The point is that the revolution has failed and so has its way of thinking. The first step towards unbeaching the whale is to start thinking outside that suffocating box. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, that's all very interesting. Uh, Part of the problem was that uh, with the revolution, there was a redefinition of um, what transparency and accountability meant uh, so that uh, the teachers were put in the front line and held responsible where, in fact, the politicians and bureaucrats and, above all, the church system should be held accountable for the expenditure of public money. So it's an interesting article, but um, I think that Dean Ashenden like others, is not prepared to uh, to take on the uh, the real the real problem, which is the churches uh, and uh, their greed and their use of children to build up their asset base. So uh, we'll have a bit of a break. You're listening to Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. We were still listening, I hope, to the dogs. Uh, And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. We're now going to go over to America and Jeff has got some very interesting news for us. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. This is another one from our wonderful blogger in in America, Diana Ravitch. Jeremy Moller, privatisation sets the stage for right-wing populism and inequity. Jeremy Moller, communications director for the nonpartisan organisation In the Public Interest, which fights the privatisation of public goods and services. Gee, we could use their help here. This article draws a link between the policies of privatisation and the rise of right-wing populism. He writes, It's one sentence in a 1,244-word article, but it made me pause and think deeply. The article is a guest essay in the New York Times 
about the rise of Sweden's far-right political party, which was created out of a neo-Nazi group and resembles the increasingly Trumpian Republican Party with its hatred of immigrants, journalists, and others. The sentence was, once one of the most economically equal countries in the world, Sweden has seen the privatisation of hospitals, schools, and care homes, leading to a notable rise in inequality and a sense of profound loss. That makes me wonder, how much has privatisation contributed to the soaring far-right popularism in white nationalism and fascism in the US? In Sweden, argues journalist and author Elizabeth Asprink, high levels of political and economic inequality leaves people looking for answers to why they're suffering and who is to blame, and far-right leaders are happy to provide them. It was better in the good old days, those leaders say, and people believe them. Asprink writes, back to red cottages and apple trees, to law and order, to women being women and men being men. Sound familiar? As we have documented, the privatisation of public schools, water and other public goods increases inequality. Government contractors create new fees for things like delinquent tax, tax payments and probation. They lower wages and benefits for workers. Privatisation also has helped shred crucial parts of the social safety net, like Medicaid. Scholars have argued along these lines for some time now. Neoliberalism creates a failed democracy, says cultural critic Henry A. Giro, and in doing so, opens up the fascists' use of fear and terror to transform a state of exception into a state of emergency. But I think it's important to highlight the role of privatisation, something embraced by both parties for the past 40 years or so. A Democratic candidate for governor of Pennsylvania Josh Shapiro, recently endorsed private school vouchers, which would take public money from the state's lowest funded public schools and give it to private schools. Like privately op operated charter schools, private school vouchers might help some students, but they leave most of the others behind in public schools starving for resources. Conservatives have long pushed for such privatization schemes and Democrats have too often joined them. Meanwhile, America's far too many underfunded schools continue to suffer with policies like charter schools and vouchers only making things worse. And we wonder why Make America Great Again resonates with so many people. Indeed, we're wondering about that sort of thing here um, where privatization has, uh, you know, it's, it's astonished people with, um, I mean, things like the, uh, the phone lines, which were paid for by our grandparents, now being charged at $30 a month just to have a phone line connected. Thank you, Ziggy Zikowski for Telstra. Um, you know, these sorts of things, which uh, we were, were public goods before, public services, now are private companies. Anyway, there's another article from Diana Rabich. It's called P Pennsylvania Voucher Bill Will Hurt the Neediest Students. Along the same theme. Jerry Zahorchuk, a former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Education, explains why the Republicans' voucher bill would harm students and public students and public schools and deepen inequity. He writes, imagine a school district with 4,000 less to spend per student than its wealthier neighbours with many students who lack supports to reach grade level. How would you help? Most people would guarantee that this school district has funds to hire enough teachers and aides to give students who are behind supports. Indeed, nearly two-thirds of Pennsylvania parents in a recent PSBA, Pennsylvania School Boards Association, poll agreed that struggling schools need more resources. Legislative leaders are instead considering taking taxpayer money away from some of the state's lowest funded schools and sending it to private schools, no strings attached. The bill, HB 2169, passed the State House in May and would, could be considered by the State Senate at any time this session. Under the bill, Students who live in, an, in the attendance zone of public schools with test scores in the bottom 15% statewide would be eligible to receive the average per student state's funding for public schools around $7,000 per year as a voucher that can be used for any qualified educational expense, including private school tuition. Funding would come directly from their local school district and would cost struggling school districts around $140 million annually. Rather than giving students in underfunded schools resources, they would use taxpayer money to fuel the private market. Families would be on their own, forgetting that we all have a stake in making sure that each child learns to cooperate with neighbours of every stripe and becoming self-supporting, knowledgeable citizens. 
Proponents claim these lifeline scholarships will help families access quality education they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. The real story is not so simple. Supporters never mention that districts with high academic performance are able to spend around $4,600 more per student on average than low performing districts. These resource gaps, which will be worse with HB 2169, closely track local wealth. When we adjust for the fact that poor school districts serve more students in poverty and other students who need more support, the gap between wealthy and poor school districts is more than $7,000 per student. The fantasy that the private market will provide a better deal for students at a cheaper price falls apart under scrutiny. Private schools often reject students that public schools rightfully must educate. Students who are behind grade level, have behavioural challenges, are learning English and more. There's no guarantee to make private schools accommodate students with disabilities, unlike public schools where federal laws guarantee students with disabilities the right to a free appropriate public education. Private schools can reject students simply because they don't fit the culture or can't pay the entire cost of tuition. Because many of these students need services that cost more, there is no incentive, there is an incentive, sorry, to say no. Um, the voucher bill was narrowly passed by the Republican-led House and also the State Senate Education Committee for some inexplicable reason. It was endorsed by Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate for governor. And we're seeing that around where, where both parties, can, both major parties, can be suborned into supporting these inequitous uh, changes. Um, this is my comments, not hers, um, because they're too scared of the public backlash if they even decide to question the right of pro private schools to channel and funnel funds away from the public purse. And uh, the, the fight goes on. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Thank you, Jeff. And now, of course, it's our good news story. The Great State School of the Week. Over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Brunswick Secondary College. Congratulations, Brunswick Secondary College. I'm gonna read you something from their website now. Brunswick Secondary College is a co-educational year seven to 12 college. Brunswick Secondary College has an overall enrollment of approximately 1000 students. The majority of students reside in Brunswick with a smaller number of students from outside the Brunswick area. The school has a select entry accelerated learning program with an intake at year seven and an international student program. School offers a discipline based curriculum complemented by units of work which are cross disciplinary and a wide range of elective subjects and enrichment programs. Our goal is to improve the achievement levels of individual students and specific cohorts through continuing to raise expectations and standards of learning. To ensure that all students have access to the same high standards of teaching, staff de development curriculum and assessment tasks in teams, teachers are committed to professional learning in order to improve their practice. Supporting high academic standards is an emphasis on positive relationships and community. This places a strong value on student feedback to their teachers. There are diverse opportunities for parental involvement, student leadership, and a rich array of extracurricular activities. In our school, the six values of teamwork, respect, excellence, achievement, persistence, and responsibility underlie all relationships, planning, and activities within the college. At Brunswick Secondary College, we strive to continually provide the highest standards of student engagement and learning so that we can continue to be regarded by the Brunswick community as an excellent choice for its students. Our success can be measured by the steady increase in enrollment, reputation and results that has occurred over the past decade and through data analysis demonstrating a strong value add to learning. 
I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you from the Akara My School website. There are 1,000 students enrolled at this school. The ICSIA value is above average at 1,108. Um, in the upper quartile of parental income, 49% of the students attend the school. In the second quartile, 25%. In the third quartile, there is 36%. And in the lowest quartile, there is 10%. So really, it's a school which has attracted well-to-do families. And there are 38% of the students speaking a language other than English and 0% Indigenous students. To finances, recurrent grants from the Australian government is $2.9 million annually. Victorian government, $11.6 million. Fees and parental contributions is $833,000. And other private contributions amount to $72,000. It costs $15,645 to send a student to this school. And there has been $4.1 million in capital over the last three years. Their NAPLAN results are just fine and 49% of the final year students attend university and 19% attend TAFE. So congratulations, Brundwick Secondary College. You are our great state school of the week. Thanks for listening to the DOGS program. And if you want to find out more about us, uh, go to our website, www.adogs.info. And from Dale and Maddie and myself, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.